Thank you, brother. I, I feel like I just got set up. They'll come up here and talking about his anniversary, and you talk about yours. And I have one myself, and you start saying about the best thing ever happened to me, and I got to talk about Jesus first. My wife has been a very special gift my whole life, and nothing has meant more than Jesus. But I can't let them put me on the spot. I had no intentions of that. But yesterday, Robin and I, um, you know, back in my day, you gave somebody your high school ring. And if they took your ring, that meant you was boyfriend and girlfriend. We'd been dating for several weeks. And yesterday was 40 years ago that I gave her my high school ring. Yeah. She was three and I was five. Crazy, I graduated high school 40 years ago. I gave her my ring the night I graduated high school before heading off to college. Um, so thankful, so thankful to see you here. I am once again thrilled to death to see people, to see faces, to see hands raised in the building, to feel the presence of your worship. It changes things in this building. Um, just, just grateful to have... The family, I told somebody here this morning, it's hard to have a family reunion every week when nobody from the family is here. It's just good to have a family reunion, to have some of you back. If you want to be turning in your Bibles, we're going to spend the first part of our time reading from the book of Jonah, chapter number 3. If you want to be turning to Jonah, chapter number 3. Um, I appreciate you um, persevering once again, and parking different places, and sitting different places, and and wearing masks and, and inconveniencing yourself for the glory of God. Um, next week is the week that we will get to invite or welcome back all of our senior saints and medically fragile and all those who are able to come. And I'm looking forward to seeing them. And we're going to honor them by protecting them the best way that we can. We can't make the building any safer than it is right now. But we're not going to back off of anything next week. So I'll go ahead and let all of you know and let all of you know that at least for one more week, we're going to do everything this same way in order to try to keep the building safe so that everybody can be back in the house of the Lord next week. I know there's some just dying, waiting to come. Um, great anticipation. I'm excited about seeing them together again. Our main text this morning, we'll look back at it in a minute. Our main text will come from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse number 7, that says, The Lord is good. All the time. I was expecting to hear some kind of something. I mean, good. I've, listen, I preached to a quiet building long enough. Y'all going to have to sound off some. There'll be some amens, a little something in the house, just where I remember I ain't by myself in here anymore. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. We get over to the book of Jonah in chapter 1, verse number 2. God spoke to Jonah. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now, that was the first time that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, y'all know the story. He hopped on a ship headed to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. God took some, some sailors. He took some seamen and a great fish, and he redirected Jonah's bad sense of direction. And, and he showed him where he wanted him. And he comes back in chapter 3 and says in verse number 1, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. I feel like God is preaching something to America today. I feel like God has something to say to America today. 
Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. The word came into the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by a decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? Turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. God saw their works. You might want to underline that one. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious Holy Spirit in this place. God, thank you for this group of people, this body called Faith Baptist Church. God, that you brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for those that are sitting here this morning, God. And put on a face mask and everything uncomfortable. They came to say one thing, Lord, I love you. And they're just here to show you, God, I pray you'd move in this place this morning. God, I pray you'd move through the airways. Lord, I ask you to take this message, God. Lord, you were there when I sat Thursday and asked you, did I have to preach this message? And God, if you're going to have me preach it, I'm going to ask you to bless it. I'm going to ask you to speak to a people, God, that we might become a better servant. Help us, God, to turn this nation back into a country in God we trust. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The story of Nineveh is a story of... Of God's grace, an incredible story of the matchless grace of a sovereign God, but it is also a story of God's judgment. Nineveh is the great Assyrian empire, it's the city of that great world empire. The Assyrians were a ruthless people, a very cruel, a very violent people. It helps you to understand Jonah to understand who they were. Historians tell us, legend says that when they would take over another country, when they would overthrow a country, they would cut off the hands and the feet of the soldiers who fought against them. They would pluck out the eyes of marksmen. They would skin people alive for being on the other side. They were a very ruthless people, a horrible people. In 772 BC, they overthrew the northern kingdom of Israel. They took over the capital city of Samaria. Then in 701 BC, they almost took over the southern kingdom, which would have been Judah, and overthrew Jerusalem. These are a ruthless people. It's no wonder Jonah hated them. It's no wonder that, that Jonah despised them. They had done these things to Jewish people. They had done these things to people just like Jonah. Jonah didn't want them to repent because he knew if they repented that God would forgive them. He knew no matter what their evil was. Boy, Lord God, America, please pay attention. No matter what evil they had done, no matter what wickedness was in their country, no matter what violence they had done, God was faithful and just to forgive them if they would just repent from their evil ways. 
Jonah knew the faithfulness of God. He didn't want them forgiven. Jonah wanted God to bring judgment on them. It's not that Jonah was a bad prophet. He didn't run from God's word because he was a bad prophet. He just ran because he wanted them punished for all the things that they had done. He wanted God to repay them for all their wickedness and all their violence. But what we see is how amazing the grace of God is. God's grace is not just amazing that he forgave Nineveh. It's just as amazing that he forgave Jonah. God's grace is never-ending and abounding. God's long arm, his, his long-suffering, of his, his patience is overwhelming. Patience is demonstrated not just to Nineveh, but to Jonah. Well, what we see right here is God didn't just do something just for the city of Nineveh. He did something for the heart of his servant. He gave him a chance to see something. So Jonah... Of course, after the second time, the great fish spit him out. The Bible says that he ran, he went, and he repented, and he told the city that they were to repent, and, and they did repent. They turned from their evil way, and, and God did not bring that upon them, but it didn't last long. You ever notice how turmoil comes when people flock to the church for a few weeks? But it don't last long. Let things get good again. Let the economy get good again. Let everybody get comfortable again. That return to the house of the Lord don't last long. There's always a time when God will say it is enough. There's a time when God says I'm done. If you don't believe it, read Genesis chapter 6. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and it repented God that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast and creeping thing in the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. It repented God. God sent the great flood, and God destroyed all of mankind except for the very next verse. Thank God for verse number 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because of that, eight people of the family of Noah lived on the other side of the flood. Genesis 6, 8, the number 6 represents man or the sinfulness of man. The number 8 represents new beginnings. Eight people on that boat, a whole new beginning. Many times as you look through the Old Testament, the Jewish nation, God's children, the people of Israel, call them what you want, God's own, they would turn their back on God. And many times God would have to send them into imprisonment, send them into punishment, Send them into slavery. Allow them to be overthrown. Many times because God's very own people turned their back and started turning into the things of the world. God said, okay, I've given you stop signs. I've given you opportunity. I've given you chance. But you've turned your back one too many times. Now I'm going to have to bring some judgment. In the book of Nahum, Nineveh has returned to their evil ways. They're back living in their wickedness again from the day of Jonah when they repented and God repented of the evil and didn't bring it on them. But now they've come back and Nahum the prophet has been sent to Nineveh to deliver this message. Chapter 1, verse number 2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he, reverse, he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not acquit the wicked, will not at all acquit the wicked. 
The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, the hills melt, the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like a fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Back to our main text this morning, the Lord is good, the stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. The last verse of chapter 2, we see the words that nobody ever wants to hear. Behold, I am against thee saith the Lord of hosts. Chapter 3 says, Woe to the bloody city is full of lies and robbery. And pray departeth not. The noise of a whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheels, the prancing of horses, the jumping of chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there's a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. And there's none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcraft. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. God said it is enough. There won't be another warning. You had your last chance. You turned your back on me one too many times. Verse number 19 of chapter 3, there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous, and all that hear the brood of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. God destroyed Nineveh in such a way it wasn't until the 1800s that archaeologists even found the remnants of the city. I think it was around 1837. I remember studying this week. I didn't write it down here, but I think it was in the 1830s. But something that I didn't know, ironically enough, the place where it used to lie is in a place now called Iran. I'm worried about America. I don't believe I'm by myself. I, I love this land. I love this country. Is there an amen in the house? I, I love the freedom that God has given us and the freedom that we represent worldwide. I love what we stand for. But I'm worried about how far we've come from God as a nation. And, and I'm worried about how far is too far. I'm worried about which warning is the last warning. I'm worried about a country that a police officer would kill a civilian. I'm, I'm worried about a country that three more officers would watch and do nothing about it while it took place. But I'm also worried that because of one isolated event, hundreds of people would burn down buildings of innocent people and loot and rob stores of innocent people. See, what doesn't make sense to me, the people that own the buildings that were burned down are just as appalled by what happened up there as you are. Why are you burning that stuff? The, the people that you're stealing from, they're just as appalled. They're just as sickened by what happened up there as you are. Why, what, makes you, what makes people think they have the right to steal from them? But, but the one that gets me the most out of all of this is that there are hundreds of thousands of amazing, incredible, responsible law-abiding law enforcement officers in this country 
There are hundreds of thousands of law enforcement people who deserve our respect, who deserve our honor, who deserve our praise. They're the people that protect us every day. They're the people that put their life on the line to save ours. They're the people that'll jump into burning cars on the news to pull somebody out of an accident or get into raging floodwaters to try to rescue somebody that's there. There, I saw one recently delivered a baby on the side of 285. They're the ones that you call 911 to get help. There's nobody more appalled by what has happened than them. Why in the world are you taking it out on them? What would we do without them? They look at that up there, what happened in that one. They're sickened by what happened. What happened up there goes against everything that they swore into office to uphold. So why do we look at them? Another thing I don't understand. The one that did it is arrested and charged, second degree homicide. The other three are charged, um, what is that, assistance to, accessory to. There's been an FBI investigation ordered of the entire event. Justice will be served. Justice in this country is running its course. Justice is taking the pattern, and those responsible will stand accountable. Why are we acting like nothing's being done? Why are people acting as though nothing is happening to, to make it better? Another thing that I'm worried about is in COVID-19. When it first came out, people flocked to the church. Normally bad things happen, people flock to the church. But what we saw was they flocked to the websites. We saw church websites increase by hundreds, thousands, and even tens of thousands in weekly views. We, we saw on our own site in that first week where normally about 350 would view it in a week, over 1,300 viewed it on the next Sunday morning. We saw a major increase in how much people would come to church sites. But today there's almost less people viewing them than there was before COVID-19 started. I'm worried about how fast we have become complacent. For 14 weeks is all it has taken for us to grow complacent to a new norm. We wear face masks to get our hair cut. I had to wear one Friday. In order to get my hair cut, I have to sit outside in the car. I have to wait until it's my turn before I can go in the building. Then I have to go get my temperature taken with my mask on. Keep my mask on to get my hair cut, and me and everybody else in there has got them on. Ladies, you got to do the same thing to get your nails did. You, you, you got to wait till it's your turn. You got to get your temperature taken. You got to have a little glass thing in front. Everything's got to wait. We, we got to wait an hour in line just to get in a Home Depot. But God forbid that we should have to put ourselves out a minute to come to the house of God. God forbid that we should have to park in the wrong parking space and put on a mask coming to the house of God. I mean, I didn't mind doing it to get my hair cut, but in the church? After two weeks of no church, the outcry was loud. Oh, God. Oh, God, if I could just go back to church. Oh, man, I've missed church so bad. I heard it from people that hadn't been in church three or four weeks before COVID-19 ever got there. Oh, I just want to be in church. There's such an outcry after two weeks, I just want to be in church. Well, it's been 14 weeks and we're in church. Where are they at? 
I've talked to several pastors in the past two weeks, and several churches, some are opening today, some will be opening next Sunday, and some on the 21st. But I've talked to several pastors of churches that are opening about the highest number of percentage of people that has returned to a building is 40%. Last week, we only had 120 in here. I get medically fragile. I get the elder. I'm excited about seeing them next week. I see some of you here today, and you're the very reason I have a mask on, just in case you showed up. To do everything we can to protect them. I'm, I'm excited about them being back next week. I'm excited about being able to open the doors. I'm praying that on Friday the 12th that that social, uh, that order, not the social distance, but the shelter in place expires. And they're able to come back. I, I'm, I'm excited they can come in. Listen, I take this stuff serious enough. You can tell it by the mask. My dad and my sister's not here because I told them don't be here. I said, don't take the chance. It's not worth the risk. Let's just play this thing out. Well, well next week. Hopefully we can put all these masks in and come back in again. But, but everybody said, oh, I just, I just want to get back to church. I'll say this. There are more people at home today by choice than by force. There are more people who choose not to do it this way than are waiting on the 12th to get here to do it another way. I'm worried that we've become complacent so soon. I'm worried that if I even... Barely just peek at the news. If you even try to watch anything on TV, they, they flash it up. And, and it bothers me that the media is constantly continuing to badger our law enforcement officers. I, I see them condemning because they arrested some teenagers. They tased one that wouldn't get out of the car that was out after the curfew. They put another in the handcuffs. I'm sorry. Those people are breaking the law that they are paid and sworn to enforce. What are they supposed to do? What do you want them to do if they're breaking in your house? Just let them go? Breaking the law is breaking the law. But I see the media continuing to tear down law enforcement officers that are killing themselves day and night to try to protect this country. They're putting in countless hours. Lord, help us. I'm worried. I'm worried that a people can be so concerned about one isolated event. But there seems to be no concern at all that we're killing millions and millions of babies. Every color, every race, both sexes, every, every um, nationality. It, it worries me that, that a man can go to prison for fighting dogs or fighting chickens. Now, don't misunderstand me. Both of those are disgusting. Both of those are sickening. Both of those deserve punishment. But I, I can't help, but it bothers me when two men can take two roosters, throw them in a cage, and they fight each other, and those two men go to jail. But right down the street, there's an abortion clinic operating, murdering babies, and with, with the government, it says it's okay. I'm worried about that nation. I'm worried about that kind of government. I'm worried about a, a country that would pass laws to legalize what God calls an abomination. I'm worried that a country would pass a law and come up with a cute little name and call something alternate lifestyle and call it legal when God clearly says it is an abomination. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. 
Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Defile not yourselves in any of these things. For in all these things the nation are defiled, which I cast out before you. The land is defiled, therefore do I visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land, vomit, the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgment, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done which were before you, and the land is defiled. That the land spew you not out also, wherein you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep mine ordinance that you commit not any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you defile not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. Two weeks ago, Wednesday night, we started a study in the book of Romans, chapter 1. We've not made it down to verse 24 yet, but I'll go ahead and read it this morning. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie, worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use of that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implicable, unmerciful, who know in the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I'm worried about a nation that's fallen further and further away from God. Not, not just a nation who has those living in abomination, but a nation whose government says it's okay to live in abomination. I'm worried that in spite of the global issues that's going on, I don't see a great turning back to God. I don't see a great movement of the church. I don't see a great movement of the people. I, I don't see a great movement of those who are called by his name humbling themselves. I don't see the church earnestly praying. I don't see the church earnestly seeking God's face and turning from their wicked ways. I'm worried about a country that God says, okay, if that's the way you want it. I've said for the past two weeks, I'm not worried about COVID-19. I'm worried about what's next. COVID-19 is the least of our worries if this country doesn't turn back to God. God has continually given us warning signs. God has continually given this country stop signs. Brian made reference, phenomenal, phenomenal job this morning again, Brian. Made reference to the crossroads I talked about last week. We are at that crossroads. We're going to decide which way to go. God has continually given us stop signs at crossroads to give us a chance to turn back. Right now, I feel like we're sitting at a red light. 
He put us at standstill for a little bit to give us time to stop and think about what we're doing. To give us a chance to repent from all unrighteousness and return to the things of God. September 11th, 2001, terrorist attacks were a unifying event for Americans. According to a new survey conducted by the Pew Research Center in association with Networks History, nothing else has come close to being as important or as memorable in the minds of the American people. In a national survey, when asked to define the top 10 events that had the greatest impact on our national society, 76% of the American public included the 9-11 attacks. The perceived historic importance of the attacks on New York and the Pentagon span virtually every tradition of demographic divide. Majorities of men and women, millennials, baby boomers, Americans with college degrees, and those without a high school diploma rate 9-11 as one of the top 10 most historical significant events to occur during their lifetime. While they seem to agree on little else this election year, the survey finds that more than 7 in 10 Republicans and Democrats name the attacks as one of their top 10 historic events. The survey finds that Americans are primarily bound together in their generation by the major events that occurred during their formative years. For the oldest Americans, the silent and greatest generations, that, un that unifying event was World War II. For baby boomers, it is the assassination of John F. Kennedy in the Vietnam War. For millennials and Gen Xers, the 9-11 terror attacks leads the list by a greater margin than for the other generations. The 9-11 terrorist attacks brought on feelings of anxiety and vulnerability. Many Americans had their sense of safety and comfort threatened. Given the traumatic nature of 9-11, it's not surprising that this event would also test people's religious beliefs. This is a worldly magazine that I'm reading here. About a fifth of the people surveyed experienced a shift in their faith. In March of 2001, a survey conducted by Gallup polls revealed that 38% of Americans said they were influenced by their religious beliefs. Anybody hear that? In November of 2001, two months after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Gallup polls conducted the same survey and found that 78% of those surveyed said they were now influenced by the religious beliefs. It more than doubled within two months of the 9-11 event. God allowed a warning sign. Everybody flocked to the house of God. Everybody ran to the church. But before the dust settled in New York, they were already back to their old ways. The financial crisis, 2007-2008, known as the global financial crisis, was a severe worldwide economic crisis. The crisis was the worst U.S. economic disaster since the Great Depression of the 1930s. In the United States, the stock market plummeted, wiping out nearly $8 trillion in value between 2007 and 2009. Unemployment climbed, peaking at 10% in October of 2009. Americans lost $9.8 trillion in wealth as their home values plummeted and their retirement accounts vaporized. When the economy calls, when the economy falls, and and when time gets tough and things are going down, listen, I don't need a national survey to show me what happens. I came in here this week and looked at that board and looked at it again this morning. I don't need a national survey to show me right here in LaGrange what happens when things get tight, when problems come. See, we started doing Judgment Journey in 1997 for 22 years. We've done it every October without fail. God has, God has made a way for us to have judgment journey. 2008 was by far the greatest number of people that we've had here 
the greatest number of people we've had saved. During the Great Recession, when unemployment was the highest and income was the lowest, during the time when the market had fallen and people were afraid of what was going to happen, uncertain by the times, not sure what was coming next, in that year we had over 20,000 people come to Judgment Journey. In the past two years, we have given away more comp tickets, more free tickets, and sold more $1 tickets than in the history of the program, and we barely topped 14,000 both years. In 2008, we had 7,677 people fill out a card, said they came to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. That doubled the number the year before and the year after. If you take that number of salvations, it almost adds up to the last two years combined. Why? Because times were bad. I looked at several surveys this week concerning church attendance, church membership, and church importance. Most charts reach back into the 1930s with the oldest days being the highest numbers. Some charts show that even as late as the 1970s, church attendance and church importance was still in the 70% range. In the year 2000, a number of active church members was at 68%. But as I told you earlier, by 2008, that number had plummeted to 38%. After 9-11, it rose back up to an astounding 78%. But today, it's the lowest in American history of people that claim that church is important in their life. The bottom line is when everything is going good, if we would continue to seek God, to serve God, and live for God, things could stay good. Things were great in the garden. It would have been great for Adam and Eve if she'd kept her hand off that fruit. When things are going good, if you just keep serving God, God can let things stay good. But as a result of comfort comes a great level of complacency. When we get comfortable, we begin to look away from the things of God and focus on the things of the world. You know, when things are going good, many people, I say many people, many Christians put God on the back burner. When, when things get comfortable, sports and recreation comes to the forefront. There's many of us right now, there's many people in America that are more concerned about are we going to have a college football season than they are whether or not we're going to have children's church and Awana programs in the fall. There's a lot more people worried about whether or not the high school football season is going to kick off on time than whether or not we're going to have a judgment journey and tell people about Christ. I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but we live in a world where entertainment becomes more important than Scripture. When economy is good and everything is going good, television becomes more important than spending time in the Word of God. When everything is going good, vacations and late trips become more important than church events. When the economy is good and everything is good, we're more important about making sure our children are actively involved in sporting events than making sure they're actively involved in church events. I, I, know, I know you're the ones that got up this morning. I asked God. I asked God Thursday, do I, have to, do I have to preach this? They're the ones that are going to put on the mask, God. <laughs> They're the ones that are going to put themselves out. They're the ones that are going to say, I don't care what has to happen. I'm coming to the house of God. I'm worshiping. I'm coming because he's worthy of my praise. I'm coming to lift his holy name. I'm coming to let him know he matters to me. I don't care about a mask. I don't care if I have to park down at the back 40. I'll hike back up there. I don't care if I have to sit on the last row of the balcony or sit out in the parking lot as long as I can hear and see. I'm coming. I said, God, they're the ones. 
That tells me that somewhere in here, there's somebody that's going to get it. There's somebody in here that's going to get it. They're going to touch heaven for God and make a difference in this country. See, I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of one. I believe in the power of unity. I believe in the word of God where two or more agree. I agree that, uh, w- with you that, that if we would earnestly seek God, that he could change his country. So it tells me that either somebody that's going to be listening or somebody that's going to be here, God said, preach this today. Lord, help us. So the title is, Is There Any Hope? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. There's always hope. Anytime you turn back to God, there's hope. Anytime people will turn their faces back towards God, anybody, anytime we, we decide to, to set our faces toward God and seek God's will, there's always hope. But I said it last week, God's next move will be determined by what we do. God is looking at the church. Listen, God's not looking at the world. Don't, don't be deceived here. Don't be naive. God's not looking at the world. The world's not going to get us out of this mess. Worldly living amongst godly people is what got us into this mess. I said that to the choir and everything, didn't I? Worldly living is what got us into this. Christians and Christians putting God first is what will get us out of this. Christians praying is what will get us out of this. Christians putting God first, putting themselves out of the way, going through whatever it takes to bring glory and honor to God. Maybe it's just a purging of the church. Maybe it's just to find out who's the real deal and who's casual Christianity. God isn't allowing anything to happen by accident. God has a purpose and a plan. God knows what he's doing. Our our main text, Nahum chapter 1 verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He that he knoweth them that trust him. I'm not saying that we need to be afraid. It's a scare tactic. I'm not trying to scare people. The Bible tells us very clearly to be not afraid. The Bible tells us to seek God, and we have no reason to be afraid. God told Abram, leave thy father's house, go into the land that I will show thee. He told him when he went. He says, fear not, Abram. I wanted to find it because I wanted to make sure I get it right. I don't want to misquote the word of God. Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield. When God sent Moses before the Pharaoh, he sent Elijah before Ahab, he sent Jeremiah before the children of Israel and Ezekiel before the Israelites, he told them all, be not afraid. Seek me, do what I'm telling you to do, but be not afraid. When the enemies, when the, or when the armies of Moab and Ammon come up against Jehoshaphat, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 20, verse 3, that Jehoshaphat feared And set himself to seek the Lord. Proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Verse number 15. The Lord sent Jehaziel the son of Zechariah before the congregation and said, Be not afraid. In the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah stood before the king and he said these words. He said he was very sore afraid. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I was very sore afraid, so I prayed to the God of heaven. In chapter 4, he echoes the words of the Lord to the people, be not afraid. 
When the children of Israel stood at the door of the promised land, the spies went over, come back, said there are giants in the land. God told Moses, be not afraid. We looked at it last week. Moses had died. Joshua has become the leader. They're about to cross over the Jordan. They're about to take over the, the land of the enemies. And, and the Lord told him to be not afraid. I got you an exact quote. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid. When the angel of the Lord came and announced the birth of the Messiah and even announced the birth of John the Baptist, he told Joseph, Mary, Zacharias, and Elizabeth, be not afraid. Jesus came walking on the water to the disciples in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm. The disciples were afraid. The first words out of his mouth were in his eye, be not afraid. Mary and Martha showed up at the empty tomb of the resurrected Jesus. The angel of the Lord showed up and said, be not afraid. God doesn't want us to be afraid. God wants us to turn to Him. God doesn't want us to be afraid. 63 times the Word of God says, fear not. 28 times the Bible says, be not afraid. I'm not saying we need to be afraid. I'm saying we need to seek God. We need to be like Jehoshaphat, who set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. We need to be like Nehemiah that sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We need to be like David in Psalms 119, seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgment. Psalms 55, 16, as for me, I will call upon the Lord and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Psalms 27, 1, a psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Lord doesn't want us to be afraid. He's not trying to scare his people here. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to say there is a way. I think it was Brian. I listened to the message. You're the one talking about I change not. This morning Sunday school lesson, God said I change not. He ain't changed. He's not changed since in the beginning, and he won't change after Amen. Everything in this book, God is the same. God has continually done things to get the attention of his people, his children, to turn them back to him so that he might show favor onto a land, so that he might pour blessings onto a land, so that he might open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there be not room enough to receive it, but God will not be mocked. He's a very jealous God, and he said we will have nothing before him. God's just looking for his people. To return to prayer. You just might be the one. You just might be the one that can change this country. You just might be the one. You might be the David. The man after God's own heart. You might be the Abraham, the friend of God. You just might be the one. Maybe somebody in this place has got the kind of prayer life. It makes me wonder if i got any kind of prayer life at all anymore. Just wonder if somebody in here, maybe this group of people right here is large enough to change the course of America. See, I believe that God's given us a chance. I believe that God's given us some signs. I believe that God's given us a warning. But I believe it's going to boil down to what does the church do next. You can take the world out of this equation right now. This isn't, this isn't about the world. The world is what the world is. Our job is to tell them about Jesus Christ that they might be saved. Paul, you did me a favor. Go over to that piano and grab a microphone, please, sir. Let them know what number you got. 
Our, our job is to tell the world out there that's lost and dying and on their way to hell. There is a God that can save you. He can and he will, but that's up to you. The reason we're here today as children of God is because we trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Amen. Every one of us in this place, what makes us children of God is that we came before God. And we ask God to forgive us of our sins. We confessed our sins, confessed what we've done wrong. We ask God to forgive us of our sins and to save our soul. And because of that, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're children of the living God. Anybody out there today, you can do that same thing. You can confess your sins. The Bible says that this is the day of salvation. This is the day that you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins and save my soul. And the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you. The Lord will write your name in the Lamb's book of life and give you an eternal home and glory. But it's up to you to trust him as your personal Lord and Savior. I'm, I'm not a man of coincidences. My, my wife will be the one to tell you I don't believe in good luck. I don't believe in bad luck. I believe in blessings and I believe in tribulations. I, I believe that, that God gives reward and I believe that God teaches through tribulations. I, I believe that, that God is very patient. I believe that God gives warnings. The nation that turns to God has nothing to fear. But for the one who turns their back on him, they better be afraid. I know we love America. But do we love her enough to bombard the throne room of God on behalf of this country? Elections are this week. National elections coming up in November. This is an important time in our country. This is a time when we as God's children better be on our knees and on our faces before a sovereign, loving kind, forgiving God who is looking to see how will we handle this. I'm asking you, church, as a church, will we join together, bathe this week in prayer. Bathe this week in prayer. I believe we'd set a trend this week. Never let that trend expire. We can see God turn and do great and mighty things. But I believe God's waiting on us. 